RPC Radio. Spoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. In this unique series, we speak with representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. Designed to give you an insight into the mind of international financial institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. episode we're talking about the European Investment Bank, the EIB. Joining us on this episode we have Robert Waterson, who listeners will be familiar with. Robert is a regulatory partner at RPC, having previously acted in government. He is either a poacher turned gamekeeper or a gamekeeper turned poacher, depending on your point of view. We are also joined by Dominic Adamski, the head of the Fraud Detection Unit in the Inspectorate General, and Morella Lascu, a member of the Inspectorate General. Robert, Dominic and Morella, welcome to the episode. Dominic, you came to the EIB through the financial control and accounting sector. How did you come to be in your present position? Yes, I came from the audit and accountancy sector and specifically within my audit role, after several years of conducting and dealing with financial statement audits, I moved to fraud risk services in one of the big four accountancy firms and I eventually got recruited to join AIB. So I already had several years of experience in handling fraud and integrity matters. But actually my first proper job still in my university was at a bank. I had an internship at the treasury department of a large commercial bank. My main task at that time was getting money sacks. <laughs> I suppose slightly comparable to where you are now? <laughs> well, the work is equally heavy. <laughs> and Morella, you came to the EIB with a very different background, first a jurist and then to investigations. So how has that brought you to the position that you are in now? Well, first of all, let me say that before being a jurist and before being an investigator, I'm a believer in the European project. I come from Romania. So after studying law, I realized that I did not want to proceed with the usual legal career. And I oriented myself towards European studies and where else to go than Brussels. And there I did this postgraduate in European studies and I started working as an intern on a temporary basis at the European Commission in the legal department of the Director General for Regional Policy, dealing with complaints on procurement, for instance, interpretation of regulations, case law, etc. And from there, I actually applied for a job at OLAF. OLAF is the anti-fraud office of the European Commission, which is an independent director Directorate and its purpose and its mandate is that of pursuing and protecting the inter- financial interests of the European Union. There I dealt with my first cases of investigation and I got really, really interested 
it's a very challenging environment. And obviously, I was still missing a part of the entire structure. And that was the perspective from the bank side, from EIB side. And as soon as there was this vacancy, I applied for it. And uh, here I am six years later. I'm currently dealing mainly, if not exclusively, with proactive integrity reviews on which we will discuss a little bit later. Thank you, Mirella. Staying with you, before we dive into the detail of the EIB's anti-fraud and anti-corruption initiatives, can you give us a brief overview of the EIB as a whole, how it came about and who its stakeholders are? Sure. The most important fact is that the history of EIB cannot be separated from that of the European project itself. From 1947, there were discussions on potential European Development Bank that could go along the lines of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which was fundamental for the post-Second World War reconstruction. And some years later, precisely in 1958, the six founding member states of the, at that time, European community agreed to create kind of a development bank that would provide finance for infrastructure projects in poorer regions of Europe in order to repair the damage and the disparity that had been caused by the Second World War. One of the largest recipients at that time was Italy and mainly the regions from the south of Italy. The first EIB loan was signed in Sicily and it was actually to build a large petrochemical complex in Sicily. So the idea was to go ahead and try to develop and to recreate and to start from scratch after the Second World War. Now, obviously, EIB has evolved over time from that social and economic context to where we are today. And EIB has become now the climate bank in the EU. The EIB, the European Investment Bank, it's called European because its stakeholders are the EU member states. In the beginning, we only had six founding shareholders. And as the enlargement process of the EU has developed along the years, starting from 1972, the EIB has obviously increased its shareholders. And now after Brexit, 27 shareholders. Now, the most important thing, and this is going to appear a little bit paradoxical to some of the listeners, is that the EIB, although it's called a bank, is not a bank in the sense most people would think of. It's not subject to supervision and regulation like a commercial bank, but it is a bank in the sense that it does do the activity of banking. It raises and lends money to different end users. EIB adheres to international banking principles and standards, including that of the Basel Committee, and EIB benefits from a AAA rating, which is very important because it is what allows it to raise money on the capital markets. EIB is very proud of its rating and wants to protect its reputation. Unlike the normal commercial banks, the EIB is, however, not allowed to make profit because that would go against the provisions of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, the TFEU, which specifically prohibits the EIB making profits. Dominic, it does seem slightly unusual to talk about a bank not being able to make a profit. What exactly are we talking about? Well, I would like to calm some of those listeners who might be worried that we are not making a profit. That would mean maybe that we are making losses. No, we are not running on losses. Not having a profit objective doesn't mean that we are making losses. What is important is that we pass on the benefit of enjoying an extremely good rating. So we are able to borrow money on financial markets at a very convenient rate. And we then pass on that benefit in the form of low margins on our own lending to our borrowers. And secondly, we do 
receive proceeds from interest and fees from our counterparts and borrowers and discover our costs, which of course are the interest rates and fees that we have to pay to our lenders and bondholders. Any profit that is generated is retained in the reserves of the bank, permitting us to increase our lending activity. Geographically speaking, where does the EIB operate? Well, for obvious reasons, because of its shareholder structure, most of EIB financing will be within the limits and the borders of the European Union. Roughly 90% of EIB activity is within the EU. However, this does not mean that we are limited to acting only within the EU. The remaining Roughly 10% is dedicated to investments and financing outside of the EU, where the EIB is implementing the EU's external policies. We can think of the EU neighboring countries, Africa, parts of Asia, and so on and so forth. And the nature of the projects that the bank is financing, sky is the limit. We have projects in railways, in building tunnels, electric grids, hospitals, schools, roads, both within and outside the EU. Obviously, for the past two years, as of 2019, the focus is going to be more on climate. EIB Board of Directors approved a new set of targets for climate action and environmental sustainability and the EIB Group Climate Bank Roadmap 2021-2025, which is a very ambitious roadmap and which defines the sectors where most of the current financing is going to go, namely into climate-related projects. Sticking with this climate focus, Dominic, how do you go about achieving the carbon goals set by the EU in terms of implementing this through bank policy? Yes, the EIB is becoming a green bank or a climate bank. Our objective is to support the European Green Deal and to make Europe carbon neutral by the year 2050. So we want to achieve this in our lending also by that year, latest meaning that we will discontinue financing certain sectors, for example, mining. And when it comes to the transport sector, we will invest more into railway networks rather than roads. So these are the practical examples of how this transformation of our strategy will impact on the scope of our projects. Staying with you, Dominic, you've talked about some quite ambitious projects. Are the EIB focusing on financing exclusively large projects or do they engage with small and medium enterprise as well? Yes, indeed. So traditionally, a bank has a huge portfolio of investments into major infrastructure operations. So these are the high value projects, several hundred million euros or more worth of investments. However, at the same time, the bank wants to reach out also to the small and medium enterprises, which form the backbone of the economy globally, not only in Europe. And therefore, we have developed kind of an instrument which is called intermediate lending. And we lend money to other financial institutions, other banks, which have, say, a significant base of customers in the small and medium business sector. As an investment bank, we do not maintain accounts for enterprises. We cooperate with larger financial institutions who are 
in the small and medium enterprise and mid-capital sector of the industry. So we lent to other banks, we then on lent our funds to the small and medium enterprises and to entrepreneurs across Europe and outside of Europe. Thank you, Dominic. Morella, we're going to go into this in a lot more detail, but at a very high level, how does the EIB go about addressing fraud and corruption? We have a very specific framework in place, a framework of policies and procedures that allow us to do that. The key policies and documents are the Inspector General Investigations Charter that sets out the scope of work, the authority and the core principle of our department. The EIB and EIF European Investment Fund anti-fraud policies, which outline actually the principles applied by the EIB group for the prevention and the deterrence of prohibited conduct. And we have a set of prohibited conducts that are defined and are harmonized across all the MDBs. The EIB group investigation procedures, which set out the methodology and the procedures for the conduct of the investigations. And last but not least, the EIB exclusion policy sets out the procedures for the exclusion of entities and individuals which have been found to be engaging in prohibited conduct. These policies are applicable to EIB activity, and the EIB activity is lending, obviously. Now, lending is materialized through finance contracts that are signed by EIB and its respective borrowers. Therefore, we have to have a contractual relationship in place that allows us to go ahead and perform our activity, which is that of ensuring that EIB funds are free of prohibited conduct. And these documents, the finance contracts, contain a set of rights and obligations of each party, our borrowers and EIB. And one of the fundamental clauses is that referring to borrowers acting with integrity and in compliance with EIB's anti-fraud policy. So the principle enshrined in the finance contract is that of the zero tolerance for fraud and corruption of EIB in its lending. Thank you, Morella. Robert, how do these documents shape the relationship between the EIB and its borrowers? I think what we've got here in terms of the relationship which exists between the EIB and its counterparts is fundamentally a contractual one. And Mirella's taken us through the individual policy documents and so on. But what the bank is doing is setting out effectively its terms of business. And what it expects people with whom it deals is to follow those policies. Otherwise, they'll cease to be customers of the bank, if I can put it that way. It's very important, obviously, at the outset that any businesses or entities in whatever form they take in relation to any of the projects which are directly or ultimately funded by the EIB. And Dominic's already explained the direct and indirect relationships that they can take from the very large to the very small. It's very important that they understand at the outset what the nature of that relationship is and what they're expected to do, because otherwise, clearly, they're heading for conflict at some stage in the future. Or, actually, if the system works, they would never receive funding in the first place. So it's a fundamental part of the way in which the bank interacts with its counterparties. In this series, obviously, we've dealt with a number of different international financial institutions, The focus has very much been on multilateral development banks. And one of the distinguishing features of the EIB is that it is an investment bank rather than necessarily a development bank. It's quite difficult in some respects to define the EIB because its role, I think, has changed over time. It's certainly not the same institution it was at the end of the war. Myrell has already mentioned the way in which it emerged out of the Reconstruction Development Bank and ultimately the Marshall Plan before that, I guess, into what it is today, which is an institution which has significant focus on green projects. So again, and this is a common theme, I think, throughout the series, it's important from the point of view of the individuals and organisations that want to interact with the bank 
that they understand precisely what its aims and ambitions are, what its mandate is, in order for them to engage with it on the correct level. And this goes right through to issues in relation to anti-corruption, bribery and so on, to ensure that the organisations are interacting with it in a way in which the organisation would expect so that the relationship can carry on over time. Managing the risk of fraud and corruption, how does the EIB do that? And what are the structures and divisions of that process? The Inspector General has the special role in addressing the risk of fraud. And the Inspector General is a control function. It's an umbrella directorate, which, among others, includes the Fraud Investigations Division. And within that framework, we try to follow the classical fraud risk management approach by trying to prevent the fraud, and then detect and finally investigate it if detected. This is the classical cycle, prevent, detect and investigate. In the prevention part, we obviously make sure that there is policies, procedures in place, as mentioned by Mirella. And in that spirit of prevention, we also try to raise awareness of the bank staff and various agents about the risk of fraud and corruption and how to mitigate that. When it comes to detection, we have indeed developed a very extensive system to help us identify the risk of fraud. And once the fraud is identified or the occurrences of fraud is suspected, then we can launch an investigative process to bring out evidence to confirm whether a fraud has indeed occurred. I understand that the EIB has recently implemented its anti-fraud system. Dominic, why was the introduction of this system seen as so important by the EIB? There's a number of reasons why we have invested a lot of effort into building this complex advanced fraud detection system. Firstly, we want to be proactive, not just want to react to incoming allegations or reports made to us through the reporting channels like by email or hotlines, we want to be actively seeking for red flags or indications of fraud and corruption because that gives us the opportunity to identify the fraud before financial losses occur or before damage to our reputation can also be triggered. It's also our stakeholders who have voiced this expectation that the bank needs to be more proactive in tackling fraud and corruption. Looking back at the last year, I have to say that this proactive approach has paid off in the last year and months of the lockdowns, where we have seen a reduced number of incoming allegations. And on the other hand, we were still able to proactively conduct our procedures to try to detect fraud using our systems and reviewing documents to, to determine whether or not there is some anomalies in the implementation of our loans. We have the benefit to look into the data for 2020, as well as actually for the first six months of, of 2021 almost. Obviously, the last year, the previous year, 2020, was was the year of the pandemic. And what our report will show for 2020 is that we have observed a reduction in the number of incoming allegations to the Fraud Investigations Division about suspicions of fraud or corruption or other form of irregularity in projects funded by EIB. This reduction is roughly, comparing to 2019, something around 15 to 20% in reduced numbers of allegations. We have spoken, obviously, to our peer organizations, to other multilateral development banks, and more broadly in the industry of fighting fraud and corruption. And this is a phenomenon observed also by others. Due to lockdown, we have all been sitting in our small area of private house and apartment. There were no business travels. Our staff of the bank has not been visiting the sites and, and our counterparts. So 
less opportunity to observe various anomalies was given to our informants. So that's why we connect deduction and incoming allegations to this lockdown period. 2021, first six months, I can already now disclose that the number of incoming allegations has doubled comparing to the comparative period of 2020. So that would confirm that we are coming out maybe from the lockdowns and there is indeed the ability to have the visibility on what is happening on the ground. All in all, the system was seen as necessary and has proven its value added. How does the system assist with the detection phase of the anti-fraud process? So to detect fraud, we have put in place a three-pillar system. In the first pillar, we have created a data-driven tool which assesses automatically all active EIB operations. All active loans are scored for the risk of fraud and corruption based on current everyday refreshed data available about those operations. So it's what we call a robot, a set of algorithms which every day are reperformed to identify and to score the risk of fraud and corruption from various bits and pieces of information available to the bank internally, but also from external data sources. This tool, again, allows us to score each and every active EIB operation from the angle of fraud and corruption risk. With this, we can then focus on those which are highly scored. In the second pillar, we identify a short list of of high-risk operations, and we perform what we call a desk review, putting a human validation process to the algorithms, because we want to check whether or not the computation and the algorithms are correct. And that's done by a human being who will verify a particular operation, whether indeed the scoring is indicating at an increased risk of fraud and corruption in a given operation, in a given transaction or loan. The third pillar is the, is the proactive integrity reviews, the on-site audits of EIB operations where we visit our counterparts. This is a more extensive activity, which we perform a few times a year only. Thank you, Dominic. Turning to you, Robert, Dominic mentioned that the EIB are taking a proactive and integrated data-driven risk process. How does that compare to other financial institutions? Putting this into context, I think figures from the World Economic Forum indicate that around 3.6 trillion in the global economy is lost to corruption, around 1 trillion of which is in the form of bribes. There is no suggestion that corruption is disappearing or that the war against corruption is coming to an end. What that means, I think, and what we see certainly on the practitioner side, and I'm sure on the side of the institutions and states, is that we're not talking about something which is fixed in terms of the types of corruption which are encountered. There are obviously very traditional forms of corruption and bribery and so on. But actually, entities and individuals become far more sophisticated as time marches on. And what we're seeing, I think, from the IB with this new and unique strategy that they've put in place based on big data is really what I would expect to be the beginning of a wave of introductions of new technology to attempt to combat bribery and corruption in the way in which Dominic has identified. In a sense, it's a bit of an arms race between those who engage in corrupt practices and the institutions with which they try and engage. The IB strategy here is very interesting in that what they've done is they've attempted to mechanise the process of identifying fraud from a number of flags and attempt to attack bribery and corruption in that way. I'm sure other institutions will be looking on with interest to see how this develops. And I think later on, we'll have some comments about the way in which the IB interacts with those other institutions in order to share the way in which they are combating bribery and corruption. Thank you, Robert. Back to you, Dominic. This detection element of fraud you've talked about is very data-driven. How is that data derived? I mentioned this enigmatic robot and set of algorithms which compute the red flags. The computations obviously are done 
on data. And the data comes basically from two types of sources, internal EIB information that is captured about each and every active EIB operation about the counterpart, starting from the basic identification of the counterpart, so ownership structure, etc., up to the current information on where we are with the implementation of the project. What is the status of the project? whether or not the counterpart is in compliance with the contractual terms and obligations of the finance contract. So this type of data is, is maintained in the bank's data warehouse. And our tool applies various mathematical algorithms to compute, for example, the rate of delay of the operation as opposed to the originally foreseen timeline for its implementation. That is an interesting element for us to see how much behind schedule are we. One of the algorithms also captures information from our data warehouse whether or not the counterpart is in breach of certain covenants and obligations under the finance contract. So, for example, one of the covenants of the finance contract requires the borrower to periodically submit audited financial statements. The fact that the report is received or not is identified in the system directly by one of the monitoring staff of the bank. And we then capture this information, whether or not the report was submitted or how much delayed. So these are the, let's say, small red flags which add up individually, these red flags might not really indicate a fire. But if you apply a number of such measures and algorithms, they might in the end bring out a certain pattern or the entire project for a number of criteria, which might point to a bigger problem. And so these are the internal data uh, that on which we try to compute these red flags. We also reach out to external sources publicly available information. A typical one which every fraud expert is, of course, aware of is the Transparency International Corruptions Perception Index computed by the Transparency International every year. It's a country-based index which tries to measure the perception of fraud and corruption in a given country. We integrate that index into one of our indicators, but there are other external data, most notably perhaps the public procurement databases. The biggest one globally is the Tenders Electronic Daily, the database of all public procurement activities in the European Union. That database itself contains a good few million individual public procurement activities that have been launched across all EU member states. And we tap in into this data that help us identify some anomalies in the procurement practices of our borrowers. Our borrowers, in many cases, are the state agencies or various publicly funded organizations, and they are obliged to perform public procurement and to publish their terms of reference or tender specifications, and also publish in the official journal of the EU and the tenders electronic database the results of the procurement activity. And we can follow that also almost in real time to follow the development on the procurement and try to identify anomalies. For example, a situation where a buyer, our counterpart, adopts rather aggressive procurement practices. So if we see that the deadline between the publication and bid submission is abnormally short, then our system will generate a flag. Or similarly, if there is a short period between opening of the bids and the decision taken to appoint a particular supplier, that's also a flag for us captured by the robot. The PIR is a kind of a final validation of what our advanced tools bring forward. We have this advanced technology, the robot, the algorithms, but in the end, we have to have a human factor to validate this on the ground. Thank you, Dominic. The third pillar of fraud detection is Proactive Integrity Review, PIR. Why is this third phase so important? This advanced methodology greatly facilitates the selection of projects for the Proactive Integrity Reviews. It's a major enhancement. I'm really happy that it 
gives us this kind of assurance that we cover the entire portfolio of the bank's operation with the robot. This is then verified to the desk reviews. And then when we start the PIR, we are more confident that the selection of projects on which we start, because we cannot review all operations of the bank. The importance of the PIR is that ultimately, when we start from the tool, this data-driven methodology, we cannot completely rely on it. I mean, we have to put in place a kind of process that will verify whether or not the robot is correct. We have to go on the ground and inspect the projects that are really high risk. Thank you, Dominic. Morella, turning to you, what is the impact of the robot on how investigations operate? To add some numbers to what Dominic just explained, to give an idea of why we needed such a tool to help us select the riskiest projects, as he was rightly mentioning. You have to keep in mind that EIB signs annually around 400, 500 projects, and the number of ongoing projects at any time goes around 2,000. The tool that he was referring to monitors around 3,000 active EIB operations. So ultimately, how can you make the best use and the most efficient use of the resources that you have available to be sure that you are able to properly exercise the mandate that you're supposed to exercise, i.e. in this case, it's the fully fledged on-site reviews. We generally have three or four projects which are the highest risk for EIB and we select them yearly and we perform on-site inspections at the premises of the borrower to verify the existence of the project, that procurements have been conducted in accordance to the specific legal framework and so on and so forth. These on-site inspections are actually performed on the basis of the finance contract and uh, this is where the mandate derives from. There are specific clauses within these finance contracts which grant us on site visits, rights, as well as access to books and records pertaining to the project. There's an obligation for EIB's borrowers to cooperate with the audit and not to obstruct in any way the exercise of this audit. Robert, from the borrower's perspective, what is the view of this? Just again, putting some of these figures in context of the wider work of the EIB, we have reasonably detailed reports which are published generally annually from the Ford Investigation Activity Report. The latest one was 2019. For obvious reasons, I think there's probably been a slight slowing over the last 12 months. These reports give details on the way in which the investigations work and the work of Myrella and Dominic's team progress over the years. What you can see immediately from those reports is that work is increasing rather than decreasing. So for the period which is specified in the 2019 report, you see a 100% increase in the number of allegations which the EIB has to deal with between 2015 and 2019. There's also other factors which we can see, and obviously these will translate into the tool which Dominic's described, but certainly at a very high level, you can see that of the allegations which are made, roughly half come in relation to projects which operate outside of the EU. Now, given what we've already heard about the allocation of funding between EU-related and external EU projects, that gives us quite a clear view of where the problems lie in relation to allegations of bribery and corruption and so on. And the focus of the investigations and investigatory work of the AB, uh, at least half of which operates outside the EU. So how does it translate to practice for the organisations which interact with the AIB? Clearly, there's a very heavy focus on the relationship which exists between the contracting partners and the EIB itself. I've talked previously about the idea that this is a contractual relationship 
And within that, there are rights and obligations on each party, but obviously on the part of the EIB, in order to check and assure itself that funding is being used for the correct purposes. So in response to a request for information, access, a chance to scrutinise what's going on on the ground in relation to EIB funding, counterparties would be well advised to respond positively and proactively to requests of that nature. I'm sure Dominic Marello would agree that obstruction and delay would also constitute red flags for the purposes of their analysis. And really, I think the organisations which are involved with the IB funding have to build in to not only the way in which they approach the project, but in relation to how the project is going to run, they have to build in the idea that there will along the way be some scrutiny which will be required by the EIB. So they'll probably get a visit. They'll probably get questions. They're required to provide audited reports. They're expected to provide details on exactly what the funding has been used for, by whom, for what purpose, etc. So that kind of level of transparency is something which has to be expected and prepared for rather than it coming as a surprise and being dealt with as, you know, a problem or something to be avoided or ignored. So arising out of the way in which the flags which Dominic's described and the new electronic system, there may be a number of risk factors which show up and that might translate to a particular problem or it might not. And indeed, the way in which the counterparty deals with those is obviously very important. From their point of view, it might well be that there is a problem. It might be a problem in the way in which their project is run, the way in which people on the ground are operating, the way in which subcontracts are being negotiated, the way in which people are operating. They may not be things which people at the top are aware of. Maybe there hasn't been adequate supervision. Maybe there hasn't been appropriate systems and controls in place. That's a problem, but it doesn't have to be a problem which is fatal to the relationship. And again, it comes down to the way in which the organisation itself deals with the EIB the way it interacts with that process and what it does to, if there is a problem, correct it. Clearly in those circumstances, it's in the interest of the organisation itself to make sure that these problems are resolved, lest funding gets withdrawn or other sanctions take place. But that cooperative and open approach is something which really should be the touchstone for any organisation that's dealing with the EIB in this context. Robert. Morella, Robert mentioned outcomes there. What are the outcomes and how are they driven by what the PIR finds? The nature of the PIR findings vary, obviously. You may encounter less serious to very serious issues, red flags of fraud and corruption, weaknesses, lack of segregation of duties, inadequate policies and procedures, and so on and so forth. So what we do, depending on the nature of the findings, is to identify what is the breach of the finance contract that the borrower has in place with the EIB. And obviously, these are the contractual remedies deriving specifically from the finance contract that EIB has in place. All financing agreements 
must include appropriate remedies for dealing with breaches of the relevant undertakings pertaining to each borrower. The remedies also vary depending on the gravity and the seriousness of the findings that we identify. So, for instance, the bank may decide to suspend specific disbursements, decide to seek an early reimbursement of the loan or part of it, the part that corresponds to the finding identified during the PIR. It's always fundamental to keep in mind and to repeat the remedies derived from from the legal framework that is in place. And it is the Bible between EIB and its borrowers. Depending on the seriousness of the finding of a PIR, uh, we may have sufficient elements pointing out to prohibited conduct that has been committed, then maybe an additional investigation is required or maybe a referral to national authorities may also be required if criminal conduct may be envisaged. Also because you have to keep in mind that our inquiries are fact-finding administrative type of inquiries. So we are not a law enforcement agency and we do not have the same powers as a prosecutor's office. So for those findings that may point to misrepresentation or payment of bribes, we may have to refer the findings to the appropriate national authorities to further assess whether indeed a crime has been committed. Returning to you, Robert, in relation to those findings, what can a company do? What Myrell has described there is that the EIB obviously doesn't act as a national police force. It doesn't have those powers. But also I think it doesn't really have those objectives either. It's there to advance the interests of the purposes of a loan rather than any other purpose. There may be circumstances where information it receives will be shared, presumably in extremists, with national authorities and circumstances where there may, may be criminal activity but within the context of the cooperation agreements which the EIB has in force. Their object is to ensure that the funds are used correctly and that the purposes of the loans are achieved. So if a counterparty finds itself in a situation where it is subject to adverse findings or it's discovered itself that there are problems in the nature of its execution of a particular project, then the priority should be for that organisation to try and find a way in which it can mitigate any problems which have already occurred and demonstrate to the bank that it has dealt with it such that those problems can't occur in the future. I'm quite interested, Myrella, in the idea of the EIB sharing information with other organisations and the nature of the agreements you have with those other organisations. Is that something that you can expand upon? Sure. Here, I would make a specific differentiation between the different nature of cooperation and assistance that we have in place with the different stakeholders, peer organizations, and so on. So in accordance with the anti-fraud policy, the Inspector General has the possibility of referring and providing assistance to national authorities or to any other law enforcement agencies, OLAF, obviously, as well as, for instance, the European Court of Auditors. And for that specific purpose, we have in place a set of memoranda of understanding and agreements on how to cooperate, for instance, with the National Anti-Corruption Agency in Italy, the Anti-Corruption National Department in Romania, and so on and so forth. So those ones are very specific memoranda of understanding that we regularly sign uh, once we start developing a working relationship with that specific national authority. In addition to that, we have enhanced cooperation with other international organizations and mostly with 
with the other MDBs and IFIs, both generally at the level of EIB, but also with the other investigative offices of the peer organization. So, for instance, with the INT from the World Bank, the Integrity Office from Asian Development Bank, and so on and so forth. From 2005, there was an endorsement of a joint statement by the heads of the different IFIs to recognize that corruption and fraud undermines the sustainable economic growth and is actually a major issue faced by the MDBs. And they have set some principles for joint actions to combat fraud and corruption. As a result of this specific event, harmonized investigation procedures across the MDBs have been adopted. And as a matter of fact, the prohibited conduct that I was referring to earlier and are enshrined in our anti-fraud policy are harmonized among all the MDBs. And this facilitates for those cases in which we find ourselves co-financing a specific project to have the same elements that constitute that specific conduct. An additional result from this cooperation that started back in 2005, the Conference of the International Investigators was constituted and it has a secretariat which is composed of different integrity functions within the MDBs and its purpose is that of sharing best practices, of understanding what are the different trends among peer functions and to build further and harmonize Back in 2019, the Conference of the International Investigators endorsed the general principles for the proactive integrity risk detection activities among all the MDBs. This had the purpose of trying to align among the different MDBs how we conduct the activities of fraud detection. I think what we've identified is that across the board with the IFIs, we're seeing what I would call the next phase in anti-corruption. From the mid-90s, of course, the issue of anti-corruption was put firmly on the agenda. But the changes which have taken place across multiple IFIs has not been instantaneous. And there's been a significant processes of learning and development, which have been discussed here today with the development of the new systems which the EIB has in place. This isn't just, however, about developing new and better investigation techniques. It's not just, in my view, something which is focusing on simply cracking down on corruption, although obviously those things are important. I think the next phase is about this idea of demanding better in relation to the IFIs, both from the public, from their stakeholders, investors, lobbyists, and obviously the press. There's an expectation, I think, now, not just on states, but also on IFIs that they're going to be at the forefront of the battle against corruption. And that then feeds in, it has a knock-on effect to the way in which the IFIs act, so the systems that they put in place, the priorities that they give to these matters, but also in the way in which they now do business, the importance these issues have in relation to new business, the motivating factors in relation to lending decisions and so on. You have the OECD focus and the Basel Committee, which we've already mentioned, in relation to national regulators. You have to think more broadly when it comes to the IFIs, of course, because they're not restricted to the obligations which fall upon states and state organisations, although it has been mentioned earlier that the EIB commits itself to the Basel standard. But there is now an expectation the IFIs, ever since the mid-90s, have to raise their game in this respect. They're not caught by state obligations, but still they're very much at the forefront of this particular fight. Given that trend, Morella, I know you get asked this question a lot, but I do have to ask it again. The EIB is so active in the anti-corruption space, why is it not part of the cross-debarment agreement that exists between the MDBs? 
Alice, indeed, this is a very recurrent question. The major MDBs have entered into the agreement for mutual enforcement of debarment decisions, the so-called debarment agreement, since 2010. And under this agreement, the participating MDBs have committed to automatically enforce debarment decisions made by another participating MDB. The EIB has not adhered to the cross-debarment agreement because it is subject to a different legal framework and different immunities and privileges compared to the other MDBs. Any EIB decision may be subject to judicial review by the Court of Justice of the European Union, and all cross-debarment entities would be able to challenge their exclusion in the European Court of Justice. Although the EIB cannot automatically apply the cross-debarment agreement, the EIB exclusion policy allows the EIB to exclude on the basis of another's MDB's debarment decision, on a condition that the partner MDB has made the relevant evidence available to EIB. So we are not part of the cross-debarment, but however, we do have in place a mechanism that allows us to exclude a specific entity if requirements are in place. Thank you, Morella. Unfortunately, we're approaching the end of the time we've got for this episode. So I'm going to ask for everyone's final thoughts. Dominic, what are your key takeaways? For the listeners here, a number of you might be asking the question, what does it mean that they might hear that this is the Fraud Investigation Division calling of EIB and that we would like to come and review the books, records, documents connected to the implementation of the EIB law. Yes, this can happen. Indeed, we have such right based on the contract that EIB has with the borrowers. So it can happen that we will, based on our assessment of information available to us and the risk factors that emerge, reach out to the counterparts. In such a situation, the counterpart, the borrower, is of course obliged to cooperate. We have already mentioned here that any attempt to obstruct, to delay the process is normally taken as a red flag for any auditor, be it also an investigator. This already would make us more alert, more vigilant to a particular case. However, I would like to stress here the fact that we reach out to the counterparts to verify a particular operation or a particular allegation is a sign that this counterpart is important for us, meaning that we want to invest our time in reviewing the operation, understanding what has happened, with the hope that this can lead to identifying opportunities for improvement. So, of course, if we identify grave or serious indications of fraud and corruption, definitely we would require remedies, like Mirella mentioned today, which can include partial or complete payment of the loan. However, this is not the case in all situations. In most cases, we come up with a set of recommendations that can help the counterparts to improve the current controls and procedures over a particular project. These recommendations can help also EIB internally manage a particular operation or monitor particular type of operations. And for the counterpart, for the borrower, these recommendations are also for future in order to prevent recurrence of various problems on EIB. Operations. So in a way, our interventions, our reviews, our active integrity reviews can help improve the relationship between the counterpart and the bank. And that's what we strongly believe. Thank you, Dominic. And Robert, what are your final messages? For me, the big takeaway here is that big data clearly is going to be a significant part of the future of anti-corruption. I'd expect the system which the EIB has created will be enhanced itself and, of course, will be copied by other institutions. And what does that mean 
for the organizations that would be counterparties? What does that mean for other customers around the world? What it means is that they can expect greater and more effective scrutiny of the projects that they're involved in. I think this is just a fact of life. I think it's about understanding from businesses' point of view what's going to be expected of them. And I think it also means the notion that organisations can simply bumble below the radar, you know, hope that their application for funding goes in and is scrutinised on a Friday afternoon by somebody who wants to get away for the weekend are are probably gone. The mechanisation of this process means that it's very much more difficult. In fact, it's just not realistic to assume that there won't be a level of scrutiny which Dominic and Mirella have described. It should be expected and it should really be embraced by the organisations which seek to get funding from IFIs generally and the EIB in particular. Thank you, Robert. And Morella, the last word is with you. Thank you. We have focused very much on specificities of our new methodology, on details, and narrow it down to how we actually perform our activity. But the message that I would like our listeners to keep in mind is the reason why we do all this, which is fundamental. And the reason why we do this is to be efficient. And why do we need to be efficient? We need to be efficient because the annual cost of corruption is estimated to be at least around 5% of the global GDP. And this means that money that should go and be invested in economy and improve people's lives end up being embezzled and used for the wrong purposes. And this nullifies the entire purpose of existence of the MDBs. So that is what we should always keep in mind. Why do we do this? And the reason is to improve within our remit people's lives. Thank you, Morella. That's a very hopeful note to have finished on. Morella, Robert and Dominic, thank you very much for your time and insight. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giant series, where we are joined by the representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the New Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank, and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John McKendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.